0: Welcome to the New Books Network. In her work, Wolves and Beowulf and Other Old English Texts*, Dr. Elizabeth Marshall examines two perceptions about wolves inherited from ancient and medieval European motifs. The superstition that the wolf could steal a person's speech and the perception that the human Outlaw exhibits wolf-like characteristics. Wolves and Beowulf traces the history and associations to suggest they were known to writers in early medieval England. Dr. Elizabeth Marshall earned her PhD from the University of St. Andrews and has received awards for both her thesis and research on the cultural and sociological issues related to the Extraordinary Predators' reintroduction to Britain. I'm excited to have you with me. Lizzie thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you. So we're just going to go right into it um, before but before we get into the book can you tell us a little bit about you and how your interest in wolves in literature evolved?
1: Um, Okay so I'm from England Um, as you said I did my uh, PhD in Uh, at St. Andrews in Scotland. I actually did my Viva, my exam from um, my sofa because it was right at the beginning of lockdown so that was an interesting experience. Um, At the moment I'm writing my second book which is A History of Wolves in Britain and Ireland. I mean I've always been kind of interested in animals. My dad's a conservationist, my parents always took us to like natural spaces and um, so yeah, I've I've just I've always loved animals. Um sadly I'm allergic to some, I'm allergic to cats, so that's a bit sad. But um probably the one of the more interesting things about me at the moment is that I have a pet uh, African pygmy hedgehog. She's called Millie. She's very sweet.
0: <laughs> and how did you come across Millie? How did you get Millie? Um, I'm not even really sure
1: how it happened. It might have been one of those where me and my partner saw hedgehogs on Instagram or something. I don't even remember, but it feels like we've always had her. We've only had her for just over a year, but it feels like so much longer. <laughs>
0: okay. And you write in in Wolves and Beowulf, deconstructing the textual wolf allows us to consider how such literature may have impacted upon the attitudes of its readers and listeners towards the wolves whom they lived alongside. So, from where did writers obtain these harsh negative views of wolves, do you think?
1: Yeah, so I think people, they they process how they feel about animals through the stories which they tell about them. And then equally, these stories that we tell about animals then affect how we treat them in the real world. And I think this is especially true of wolves, because they're so mythologized, and they so frequently appear in these cultural products throughout history. Um, so I think if we want to examine how people in the past sort of thought about wolves, how they viewed them, what, they, what their experiences were of them, um, one of the very few ways in which we can do so, particularly when we're looking at much further back in time, um, at least in terms of written cultures, is we have to do this through literature, um, whether it's more kind of from the fictional side or from the non-fictional side. Um, and we can also look at the it's both a case of the stories that these people told about wolves, which drew on their own experiences, but their stories also draw on these other stories that went before them. Um, So they're influenced by both knowing about wolves that they share the landscape with and with these, um, these previous stories and stereotypes and myths and legends and all that kind of thing.
0: And so what was your outlining process for this book was it a part of your your doctoral dissertation or was it a separate research project that you that you were doing and just so happened to I wouldn't say stumble upon because it (laughs) there's there's a lot there's a lot of study in 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 the book so what was your process like
1: um so it was actually it was my doctoral work that this book initially came out of and um it was it was kind of interesting because I remember it was when I was doing my masters, and at the time I I kind of knew I wanted to go on to do a PhD, but it was one of those things where I wasn't particularly sure about what I wanted to do. I had these vague ideas of I'd like to look into monsters or I'd like to look into animals or something like that, and I'd already done some work on. Um, there's uh, an old English text, which is a translation of a, an ancient Greek text called the Physiologus. And I had already done some research about that. And I had also done some research on um, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, looking at the Green Knight and his kind of monstrous traits and that kind of thing. Um, so it ended up where I went to my um, one of my professors and I, I kind of said that to him. I said, I'm interested in monsters, animals, he went and gave me some reading material. I go and read it, and I make a big list of sort of things that I I was interested in from this reading material. Um, and I go back and I'm I'm reading off the list, and he was like, "Yes, wolves. Nobody's done wolves before." Um, and it was true. I mean, I as soon as we sort of settled on this topic of wolves, we ended up I ended up doing a lot more reading. And although there's these kind of more piecemeal articles and book chapters and that kind of thing um there was no kind of coherent whole um nobody had considered all of these things together as a you know big extended study um so that was really exciting and then as the as the kind of research process came kept going there was um kind of two key themes, key associations that kept coming up. And as you said earlier, it was the this idea that wolves could steal a person's speech, they could strike somebody dumb, the superstition. And then this also idea that there was a kind of conceptual duality almost between um, wolves and outlaws or criminals. So after, you know, it's, it's a lot of writing, it's a lot of research and a lot of axing things, even though you don't want to ax them. Um, it ended up that, it was kind of natural that those two topics became the first two chapters of the book um, to kind of provide this groundwork and a base from which to like build this analysis of the um, of the old English texts that I wanted to look at. Um, and then it became a case of, well, which texts do I want to look at? Because I mean, there's such a wide corpus of literature. There's, you know, heroic poems, elegiac poems, um, There's saints' lives, homilies, exegetical stuff. There's so many places where wolves crop up. Um, So again, that was one of the things where it was really difficult to kind of pin down, you know, what do I really want to focus in on? Because there was such opportunity. Um, But it ended up where it seemed like I had the most things to say about um, four texts, but kind of three in a way because um so there's two poems two old english poems wolf and eadwacer and beowulf and then the other two texts are kind of the same story if that makes sense so one is um an anglo-latin uh, life of a uh, East Anglian King Edmund and then the other one is a translation an Old English translation and they're both kind of the same story but the second the Old English text is kind of adapted and changed from the first one so yeah they they became kind of the natural um natural texts to be talking about but again I mean it's it's this kind of thing of like when you're writing it's it's almost like killing your baby because you have to cut out so many of these things that you want to keep and I've got so many I call them offcuts, offcut chapters offcut cut ideas um, which I hope to to kind of revisit and that's been one of the great things about being able to being lucky enough to write the second book is that I can now go back to some of these ideas that I didn't get the chance to um, to visit in the, in the first book.
0: And I'm very happy that you, that you've, uh, because that's a question that I usually ask scholars when I'm talking to them is like, what, what is the one thing that you had to leave on the cutting floor that you're like, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to take this out of my book, but I'm going to have to. Can you, can you tell us like one? (laughs) Well, (laughs) Well, I mean, there was,
1: there was quite a few. One of the things I was really interested in, particularly because a lot of these, um, the ideas that I was talking about, like the the classical things and the sort of analogous traditions, um, I really wanted to dig a bit more into that. So I had some off-cut chapters about wolves in Old Norse poetry, in Irish literature, in Welsh literature, um, and then a really big chapter which I was very sad to leave because I had drafted and redrafted this chapter so many times and then it just ended up going. Um, It was about wolves in um, the Aesopian fables and kind of tracing this history of, um, it's a really complicated history with where the fables initially come from, you know, whether Aesop was even a historical figure or not. Um, And then they get transmitted throughout history, um, throughout the classical world until they reach early medieval England. So it was really interesting trying to uncover sort of which of these uh stories about wolves were known in early medieval England. But that that got left behind.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, because that would have been in I can't wait. You're gonna do it? Are you gonna talk about it in, in history of wolves? Um I think I don't
1: know again, because this I think it's probably gonna be one of the things that gets cut, but what I'm hoping to do at some point, it's one of those things, it's been on my list forever, but I would quite like to try and publish as a as a chapter or as a, a journal article or something, just so that it doesn't, you know, go to waste. Yeah, yeah.
0: Because that sounds like it would be incredibly interesting to read about. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, oh. And so the... Your introduction gives an extensive synopsis on the cultural perceptions of wolves. It, it's so good. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, and they are considered like untamable, beguiling, and, and flesh eating hunters. What is the superstition behind the speech stealing wolf? what what is that
1: yeah so the, these these ideas of wolves being like you say like untamable and ferocious and flesh eating man eating those i think are uh, they're quite well known i mean even if we don't know why we have those ideas i think everybody subconsciously or consciously has these ideas about wolves right but the um the speech stealing one is interesting because i mean very few people even kind of know about that and very few academics have sort of given it much much time um i'm not sure why because i think it's very interesting but um it's um so according to the superstition if a wolf saw a person before the person saw the wolf they would be struck dumb they'd lose their voice um and then there's some kind of variations on that there's um different almost versions on this on the same theme so in some of them it's said that if the person sees the wolf before the wolf sees the person, then it loses its ferocity and it runs away. It's it's too scared to steal the person's speech, I guess. Um and there's some particularly interesting, almost cures, I, I guess, that come up with, um, with later texts with the later medieval bestiaries, um, where the person who was struck dumb has to, they have to strip naked and they have to bang two stones together I've no idea why. I don't know if that was a, a sort of cure for the speechlessness or it was to make the wolf go away. I'm not sure. Um, very kind of very strange sort of variations on this story. Um, but there's it's very interesting as well. And sadly, this was another thing that kind of got left on the cutting room floor, as, as you as you put it. Um, there was a, a proverb that was there's no kind of evidence that it was related to the superstition but it 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 would be too much of a coincidence if it wasn't right um and this proverb goes back at least as far as like 200 BC it was known to uh Terence to Cicero lots of other grammarians and um yeah, different different people throughout history, and basically this this proverb is kind of idiomatically equivalent to the modern English uh, "speak of the devil." So we say "speak of the devil" when somebody walks in who we're talking about. It's like, oh, speak of the devil, We've got to stop talking about them. And it was the same. The, the wolf version was kind of used in the same way so if the person that you were talking about came in you'd say lupus in fabula which means the wolf in the story so the wolf in the story has entered we've got to we've got to stop stop talking about them and so that that's that proverb as i've said goes back about to 200 bc or the written evidence that we know it was kind of circulating goes that far it probably was older than that but we you know there's no way as i said if it's not in literature we don't we have no way to verify what things were known if they were circulating orally rather than in um, in written texts but the superstition seems to be even older um so it possibly goes back as far as plato there's kind of a a hint that he possibly knew about it and possibly used it in a in a section of his republic but it's it's one of those things where it's it's kind of a hint, and I wish I could go and ask, go back in time and ask him, is this what you're referring to? But we can't say 100% for certain. But we do know that it's definitely known by the Greek poet Theocritus and by Virgil as well. Um, and then after that, after that, uh, throughout time, it, it kind of reappears really frequently. So it comes up in um, Isidora Seville's Etymologies, uh, Pliny's Natural History. Um, several of St. Ambrose's texts, which is interesting because he puts kind of a religious allegorical spin on it, um, including like in his Hexamarin. Um And what was very interesting to me is that there's not very much kind of direct evidence of people in early medieval England actually knowing. Um, nobody kind of, discusses the superstition outright in these early medieval texts Um, but what we can do is we can trace whether people working and writing in early medieval england and in ireland and another and in other places knew of these different texts and what the likelihood was that they read um about this idea that the wolf could steal a person's speech Um, so that was that was really um really interesting to me was trying to it was almost like detective work thinking well if if B knows Isidora Seville then how likely is he to have um kind of known known of this idea and perhaps even used it in in some of his own ideas and his writing so
0: there are wolves and then there are wolf-like people who are considered outlaws in the book what are the differences and commonalities as depicted in literature.
1: Yeah, so so this is this idea that wolves and outlaws are kind of conceptually similar in some ways. It comes up in in both Old English and in Old Norse uh, literature, um, and there's kind of numerous uh, conceptual sim- similarities or dualities between the two. So both of them were considered to live sort of in the wastelands, in the wildernesses, far away from people, particularly in woods. Um, and the idea was that they had been driven there. They had been driven away from civilization by people. Um, and in terms of why the outlaw had been driven away, it was usually because they had committed some sort of crime. Um, and because because of the crime, because of the kind of associations of committing a crime they were sly crafty malicious um they preyed on other people like a wolf would prey on sheep um because of that criminals and particularly i think thieves were often compared to wolves um so for example there was an 11th century monk called alfred and he describes criminals and thieves as being like savage wolves um so that that's an idea that um that crops up a lot that if you commit a crime um that kind of makes you in some way similar to how a wolf would behave um and also the fact that if you become an outlaw um if a person commits a crime they run away they become an outlaw um that essentially means that they are outside the law and um, their right to protection from retribution to be hunted down um was essentially revoked so they can be killed with impunity. There's no consequences for being, um, for killing an outlaw. Um, just in the same way that there were no consequences for killing a wolf. Other animals are, uh, they're protected under, um, particularly following the Norman conquest and the, um, the establishment of these like Royal forests. Um, some animals, particularly deer are protected because, um, only the king or some, you know, nobility want to hunt the deer, um, but wolves are seen as an animal that's kind of useless, <laughs> um, noxious even. So they um, they can be killed, and nobody particularly cares if you do that or not. And in the same way, if you kill an outlaw, there was this system of wereguild where if somebody was killed, um, the person who killed them had to pay compensation to the family of the person this didn't apply to outlaws so again this idea that you might have to pay compensation if you killed a deer or if you killed an animal that technically belonged to somebody else in the same way no payment has to be made um, for an outlaw um so yeah a criminal who they initially acted like a wolf and then they're outlawed and then their kind of wolfishness is reinforced almost because they're driven away from society. They have to live in the same, or they're perceived to live in the same sort of wilderness haunts to escape persecution from people. And they kind of, they essentially renounce not only their social and legal statuses, but also their status as human because they act like a wolf. So they get kind of treated like them. Um and there's there's also this idea, I think it was in Gary Marvin's book, Wolf really excellent book. highly recommend it um He talks about how this idea that um because wolves kind of snuck out of the forest to steal people's sheep they're then considered similar to human thieves so it becomes almost this cycle of um evil people being compared to wolves and then wolves are compared to evil people and they become almost kind of more maligned as a result of that um it's also it's interesting because it's it's very difficult to pinpoint where this um this idea of this kind of conceptual similarity, this duality between the wolf and the outlaw comes from. Um, there's a, a Hittite law, which is from thousands and thousands of years ago that says that a person who has committed a particular crime has become a wolf. Um, so that comes up a lot in, this. The, the Wolf and the Outlaw Association has been quite extensively studied by, by scholars. It's a really kind of contentious topic. Um, so this this Hittite law gets mentioned a lot and it's interesting because after that there's kind of a period where there's no written evidence for this similarity between the wolf and the outlaw until we get to much later Frankish laws I think of the 6th and 7th centuries um, and in these laws a uh, grave robber is described as a wargus um, and it's been suggested that this term has a kind of Lupine connotation—it's a term for an outlaw, um, but it has a kind of lupine connotation because there's an Old Norse cognate of this word, vaga, which meant both wolf and outlaw. And frequently, the the word vaga is used in Old Norse texts, kind of in a seemingly deliberately ambiguous way, so that it's difficult to kind of determine if the if the poet is talking about a wolf or an outlaw or a kind of wolfy outlaw sort of figure um, to kind of add to this complexity and this was a very difficult chapter to write in the book because it was so difficult to to kind of unravel all these ideas and the, the language involved um, there was a, a related term to both wargus and to varga which was an old English term wayarg which just to make life even more difficult was both a noun and an adjective so the noun was criminal meant criminal, and um, the adjective was accursed, so it referred to like an accursed, outcast sort of person. Um, And there's no evidence, unlike in the Norse tradition, there's no evidence that um, this had a kind of dual meaning of wolf and outlaw, Um, but it seemed to have had a kind of almost lupine connotation, um, because it's... um, it's often used of these kind of outlawed, not quite human not quite wolf figures if that makes sense.
0: You're right wolves were sometimes depicted as the mounts of female trolls and giantesses in Old Norse and you mentioned Henry Bradley's comment that the Old English poem Wolf and Ewater should be taken as a woman's dramatic soliloquy. What was the belief around wolves? and the feminine.
1: The this is a really interesting question because it's not actually something that I've kind of really considered or you know it didn't cross my mind that there might be some kind of a special connection but actually um I mean, it it, it is interesting that this, this idea that it's the the female giants and trolls that have the wolves as steeds. Why that is, I I really don't know. And then it occurred to me that in Beowulf, both the the two monsters, Grendel and his mother, they're both kind of compared to wolves. They behave like wolves, but only Grendel's mother is actually directly explicitly called a wolf she's called a brim wolf a sea wolf um so although kind of both of them might be interpreted in these wolfy kind of ways um only she is specifically referred to as a wolf and you know maybe it it could be that there's no particular significance to that at all um but it is also it's interesting in terms of this idea that there could be this special connection between um between wolves and women there's also a really excellent article by um victoria blood i think that's how you say it, blud um she writes about the speaker of a of this poem wolf and a watcher um and it's very interesting because this although the poem is um it's spoken by this woman and she's addressing this this character wolf who his name is quite clearly lupine and he he appears to be hunted um as if he's a a wolf or a wolfish outlaw um but the the speaker this woman um who henry bradley refers to as giving this dramatic so- soliloquy she occupies a kind of very strange not quite in the in the community not quite outside of the community um status um she's kind of both outcast by the by her people and rejected by them but still kind of on the periphery of it she seems to be possibly being kept uh, held captive in some way um and in in this article victoria blood she compares um the speaker of this poem with a woman in Marie de France's Bisclavre, I think that's how it's pronounced Old French is not my area of expertise um, but this that's a story about um, a man who can transform into a werewolf and to do so he has to take off his clothes and he puts them in a safe space while he goes off and he does his werewolf things um, and he to change back into a human he has to come back to the clothes. Um, his wife then, it, she finds out that he's a werewolf and she's kind of understandably horrified. <laughs> but what she she then does is she hides the clothes to kind of get rid of the werewolf husband and then she remarries. Um, and the, the kind of resolution of the story after some other stuff happens is that she ends up being exiled along with her new husband for what she's done. Um, so both this... Uh, this female character in this werewolf story and the female speaker of Wolf and the Watcher—they kind of occupy this really strange state where they're both rejected by the community but they're not actually formally outlawed. Um, so another thing that Victoria Blood refers to is a 13th century English law code in which women who commit a crime can be declared to what they say as bear the wolf's head which is a metaphor for the outlaw it comes up in in several different texts um, and it also says that they can be killed with impunity, again this idea that like wolves they can be hunted down and killed and there's no consequences. Um, But they're not actually technically outlaws, because as women, they were never inside the law. They were never a part of these legal systems to begin with. Um, So there's a great um, quote from this, this article. So she says, for banished women, the strange suspension between community and solitude evokes a different kind of exile, distinguished from the settled, socialized sphere in a way that is far less clear cut and perhaps consequently rather more wolfish and i think that's a really great idea that um sort of because these outcast women weren't just outlaws which is a much more kind of clearer and more defined concept but they're both part of these communities and yet they're not included in these same kind of legal systems which men were a part of they become almost more wolf-like because of this strange state of being simultaneously in and out and almost less human because they lack the same um, kind of social and legal statuses as men. Um, but then in some ways they're even more similar to to unprotected and persecuted wolves because um, they can be killed, but then they're in an even more kind of precarious position because they're not formally banished from civilization. They don't go to the same kind of wilderness haunts as the male outlaws and wolves. And yet they're still at, kind of serious risk of being treated like a wolf and being killed with impunity.
0: Well, Lizzie, wolves in Beowulf is incredible is an incredible work of art so I can see why you've yes I didn't know that I could be that interested in wolves and how and how they're portrayed in literature and in our society as a whole like then I started like I last week I watched Michael Jackson's thriller again just because I'm like oh this is very interesting of how we portray wolves even in pop culture I didn't know there was wolves in that (laughs) He, he he turns into a werewolf right interesting yeah uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> yes. so um when can we look forward to the history of wolves I know you're <laughs> writing it don't want to rush the process oh, I know it's a process the, the process has I been know.
1: far too long already it's um <laughs> it's uh it's it's difficult trying to you know it's discipline it's a lot of discipline it takes to write um hopefully by 2025 I'm hoping that it will be finished,
0: um, but never know. <laughs> never know what life's gonna throw at you. Well, thank you so much, Lizzie. Wolves and Beowulf and other old English texts are out, so go snag, go read a little bit. Thank you, Lizzie.
1: Thank you for having
0: me.